Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today we have a wonderful guest. His name is Michael Gelbert. He's a licensed social worker and he does integrative psychotherapy, offering somatic, pragmatic, and systemic trauma and conflict resolution guidance for individuals, couples, and families. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about how Michael does um, a lot of um, uh, conflict resolution with polyamorous and non-monogamous people. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Zimati. So glad to be here. So glad you're here. So why don't we start by talking about your personal story and your practice of open relationships? Well, sure. Thanks for asking. It's always really wonderful to be asked questions and uh, and have someone's interest and um, be able to express ourselves. So and this subject is one that's close to my heart. I've been married before. I had a 14-year marriage. And so I've practiced monogamy, and um, I have explored uh, what open relationship and ethical non-monogamy looks like for many years with, I would say, increasing success over the years as I've sorted out what it means. I don't really like the phrase polyamory too much because it, it has some imprecise meanings and I can feel the whole continuum between being monogamous in myself and being and having non-monogamous instincts is how I would describe that. And I like the agency depth and continuity of a committed ongoing relationship. I like continuity and connection and I'm very intimacy and relational centered and what I mean by that is I express myself openly and vulnerably and honestly I like to inquire into other people's experiences and build trust build connection engagement explore I'm those are core values of mine being responsive and being connective and so I've I used to feel like 100% 100% transparency was a model, and I've, I like the idea of inter, in Interstellar, the movie. They say the computer is programmed for 94% honesty. And I say, well, why, why 94%? You know, well, human, humans can't take more than that. And, uh, and I think about just it's just so important to be discerning with what we share in our honesty and timing is important, and the other person's capacity is important, and setting up the conversation well is important. So I'd say over the over time in my life, I've tempered and, and increased my discernment for when I express myself and what the other's availability is. Um, so Yeah, and I like when you yeah. use the phrase building trust, because um, if you're truly working toward building trust, then when you make those decisions about how honest to be, your discernment, your timing. If the underlying purpose is to build trust, then you're not going to withhold information because of sneakiness. You're going to choose to withhold information because of your care and concern for the other person. Exactly. That's really a nice distinction. You know, there's so much avoidance that I see. And if I feel like I'm avoiding a particular conversation in my personal life now, I'm going to lean into actually sharing that with consciousness about timing and what the other person's interest in hearing is. And, um, so that's a good distinction. Mm-hmm. So you were mm-hmm. married and monogamous for 14 years? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and then how did along. you begin to practice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just yeah. going to say, how? at what point did you begin to practice non-monogamy and why? Well, I opened up my marriage with a quote-unquote polyamory agreement, and we experimented with uh, polyamory at the end of my marriage, and and uh, that was challenging. We had coaches that helped us through. We had parameters and boundaries. It turned into too much processing and too much complexity and and didn't work in that instance. And I learned a lot from that, and my was wife and I are good friends now, and and uh, have been able to repair our trust and our love for each other. Um, it, it was difficult. I'd say that over the last 10 years or so, I've developed more capability in that way of, of discerning and experiment with different relationships where there's been more freedom. There's been more freedom to express however we feel um, we is true to ourselves. And having... Um, Lots of rich connections with multiple partners has been a part of my life, especially on the dance floor. On the dance floor, I'm a, I love to flirt, explore, and share, you know, energetic connection and intimate eye contact and affection and limbic systems. It's how I build connection and community. So on, on the dance floor, I'm, a, I'm polysensual and very, very richly connective, and I love that freedom. Um, I'm in a relationship now with Amanda, um, and before you go into open. your relationship, before you go into yeah. your relationship with her, um, I want to ask you to clarify for our listeners who don't understand what you mean by on the dance floor. Um, we have a particular. Uh, I know what you mean because I'm aware of the the dances that you go to. But you know, somebody might be thinking like, where is he dancing where he can flirt with people? Can you explain that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very rich, connective dance community that uh, that I'm a part of in the Bay Area that's ecstatic dance and soul motion and five rhythms, dance scenes that are very, uh, no talking on the dance floor, they're barefoot dances, and people go there to just be in the purity of body movement, expressive movement, and interpretive dance. And it feels very nourishing, very rich. Contact improvisation is another form of that. And uh, it doesn't mean that I'm sexual with the people on the dance floor. It means that I'm sensual, connective, and relational uh, with those people. So I like to make those distinctions, this um, uh, spectrum of intimacy from uh, from friendliness to more uh, sensual connection to more erotic connection to more sexual connection. I think it's important to distinguish between the, those different kinds of connection, forms of connection. Yeah, and I think those uh, ecstatic dance type places are great laboratories or kind of microcosms of non-monogamy because um, you're with each person in that moment and it's special and beautiful, but there's no expectations beyond that to even dance with them again, let alone see them off the dance floor. (laughs) Exactly. The dance could end at any time. Someone could step out or bow back. I like to think of it as invitational. I'm offering a uh, connection, and I'm not requiring it. I'm not demanding it. And the other person is completely free to choose uh, to be connected on whatever level they're they're interested in organically connecting uh, with. And exactly, the meanings are whatever we ascribe internally. It doesn't mean anything in terms of off the dance floor, what that connection will look like, whether there's even names exchanged or any kind of context exchange. So it's it's more pure connection in the sense of 
physical, energetic connection. There may be history I have with these people too, in which case it becomes even more richly textured connections over mm-hmm. the over the course of time and community uh, is really built mm-hmm. in a beautiful microcosmic way. Right. Okay, so you were going to talk about your current relationship? Well, yeah, I'm in a relationship with um, even calling it in a relationship is, is um, defining. We actually don't really define our relationship. Amanda and I uh, have a very uh, satisfying connection and we allow for different kinds and levels of intimate connectedness with others, including sexual if desired. And it doesn't mean that I've actually acted that out much, um, but just the permission, the allowance of that, and the freedom of that satisfies about two-thirds of my need to actually be sexual with anyone else. And mm-hmm. if we did choose to be sexual with someone else, we have some rules around it, mostly around safety. So... And I find that I'm not resisting confinement. I feel both free and connected. I have lots of different levels of connection with people, and I pay a lot of attention to my connection with Amanda to really build the trust, build the connection, build the relational steadiness, and build alignment. Um, relationship doesn't mean it's just um, no uh, rules or no... Um, a shape. It's got a shape to it and a texture that needs good tending. Yeah, I know a lot of times um, we feel comfortable when we can label things. We can say, oh, that's your girlfriend or that's your lover or that's mm-hmm. your wife or, um, or you're just friends or that's your ex. So when we can label people, then it's tends to make our brains relax and because we, we can put it in this category. Um, but when we let go of those traditional labels and we let each relationship be what it is, I notice that my brain wants to go, well, well do you guys have sex? Like, what, <laughs> what does that look like? So how do you practice this non-labeling thing? Uh, do you get various questions from people or what does that look like for you? That's a really good question. Now, first of all, it functions between Amanda and I. So our connection is the actual energy exchanges we have, the actions we take with each other, how we treat each other, how we love each other, how we respect each other, what our word is like, how we follow through with actions, our generosity. It's real, actual relationships. Like the map is not the territory. And the territory Mm -hmm. of our relationship feels very saturated with meaning and connection. The map... Mm -hmm is more open than that. We don't have a, a defined thing that and neither of us seems to be pulling for that or needing that at this stage. Mm-hmm. And it just functions. How it is for other people, it's like, well, that's secondary. How my relationship was, is with Amanda to other people and their perceptions to me is secondary. Um, when I do see someone else and I have an energetic or erotic connection with someone else, I will tell them right away, I have an open relationship. I'm in in an open relationship with Amanda. I want to let you know so that you have a choice whether you want to, on what level you want to connect with me. And Mm -hmm. for some people, that's a rule. Oh, I can't do open relationships. There's many people that are uncomfortable with with that. Okay, well, that's all right with me. I don't have an agenda or an outcome demand of something being, any relationship being in a certain way. I like to see what it is distinguish the different qualities and energetic features, intellectual kind of connection, heart connection, 
that I have with someone, continuity that I build with them, and have that be, it's kind of existential. So it is what it is. The definition comes from what, from what is. And to me, it's more important what it is than the definition or the concept. Mm-hmm. Right. So in my coaching practice, I primarily work with midlife people who are moving into open relationship for their first time, and they may have grown children, um, they may be divorced, or they may not be being sexual with their spouse anymore. So mm-hmm. these kinds of undefined, um, vague relationships that are just based on the energetic connection you have are fine and exciting and fun. But what about people who are a little younger that may want to have children, that may want to create a nesting partner and have a family? Um, is it harder for them to go without the definitions, do you think? Again, it's a great question. I think that when there's children involved, there is a need for more structure. And so Mm -hmm. for younger people, there's more, there may be a more compelling need to have have that definition to provide more stability and security and anchor the relationship. So Mm -hmm. then marriage is going to make more sense or some kind of committed, uh, some kind of commitment. And I think how well people describe and define that commitment early on, if it's too tight, it's, it can be restrictive and confining. If it's too loose, it can, feel, it can feel too vague and nebulous. So what's just the right amount of structure that, that couples or people are able to, to dial into for their relationship that provides enough structure but isn't overly confining. And so I try, in my practice as a psychotherapist with individuals or couples, I try to help people to have those conversations that are difficult ones uh, that can help describe the structure uh, or the boundaries of the relationship in such a way that both that feels breathable and, yet, and, and feels stable at the same time. Um, yeah, I think that's very important for people to to talk about what, what do they want because I always say there's no relationship police coming around telling you you're doing it wrong, so you get to design it exactly as you want. So I think it's great that you hold space for people to talk about what they want. Um, do you ever see – so I'm assuming that you see non-monogamous people in your practice. Mm-hmm. I'd say that I would beg to differ with you. I think there are relational police. I think there are internal ones. I think there are cultural norms. I think there's there's uh, values that have been taught and conditioned. Uh, there's conscience. There's loyalty polls. There's so I think there actually are relational police. And let's say, for example, well, they're, all in, they're all internal based on our programming <laughs> and our society. There's no actual, yeah. there's nobody that's going to knock on your door and say you're doing this wrong. We're going to arrest you. <laughs> well, in that sense, of course you're right. But in the sense of uh, of spousal arguments or, or couples arguments, there shows up the relational police. You know, the expectations that aren't being met, the the disloyalty, right. the little betrayals, the cuts that happen, and the big betrayals. Um, so much mm-hmm. I was about to just express like oftentimes you know what brings couples into my office is some kind of level of betrayal oftentimes it's an Mm -hmm. infidelity 
And so mm-hmm. um, I love what Esther Perel says about this. She teaches some really powerful works in her uh, in her materials, um, and that oftentimes couples don't have the difficult conversations earlier on. And so when they the difficult conversations come up is during a crisis. I think that's probably true mm-hmm. of midlife crisis and middle-aged people that are coming upon a stage of their lives where what they had before isn't working and what they have in the current in their current lives let's say if their wives are menopausal or if the sex is stopped in the relationship they have a, they have dilemmas they have loyalty conflicts and um I think that's I love what you're doing for for middle-aged men I see men staying in sexless marriages where the women are saying, I don't, I don't want to have sex anymore, but I don't want you to have sex with anyone else. And just speaking, it's just such a difficult position for a man to be in who wants to be loyal to his family and his marriage and his wife and his love and his, 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 his duties, if you will, and yet also wants to have the freedom to be a sexual being. And I've seen mm-hmm. repeatedly in my practice men choosing in that place between two very, very difficult options and looking for mm-hmm. a way to resolve that. So I really appreciate the work you're doing with with those men. And I, I encourage you men out there that are in that kind of dilemma to have support for that because it's it's really a difficult uh, quandary and loyalty conflict to be in that kind of uh, position. Exactly. So how do you help couples navigate the differences and conflicts that have come up when they come to see you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that my specialty is really helping helping people to have the difficult conversations, to, to lean into the conversations rather than avoiding them, and to be mm-hmm. able to, to br- approach the conversation in such a way that's more likely to have success. So setting the table for the conversation. Uh, initiating a conversation, setting up a time for it, uh, setting up our own nervous system so that we're more prepared to have the conversation in a good way. And softening the approach is so key to having a good conversation. Setting it up in a respectful way so the other person is ready and willing. Setting it up in a positive way so that a lot of love and gratitude is expressed and respect is expressed. And being able to then bring in tools to really have the conversations, let's say, for example, about er- the erotic realm and relationships with, uh, if I'm in a hetero model, relationships with opposite, opposite gender um, 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 people that are attractions, right? And how do couples, do couples have those conversations? Like, okay, well, what's really safe and what's really acceptable within our relationship for how, let's say, you relate to someone that you're attracted to. And to have that conversation before marriage, before a crisis, before a betrayal happens, so that that territory can be explored and isn't then... but not explicitly agreed to. Does that make sense? Right. But so yeah, but so few people go seek out help and support until they're in crisis. You know, how how many people go mm-hmm. to a therapist when they're beginning a healthy relationship and it's new and exciting and fun and say, "Hey, help us 
plan for future conflicts. <laughs> Usually people come after they've had the betrayal or the trauma. Yeah, I mean, I do have some young couples that come in that come in premarital or come in during their relationship crisis before they've been you know, involved and had children and they're 10, 15 years down the line. So um, mm-hmm. there are, I think, increasingly people that are seeking out that kind of wisdom and insight and seeking out those kind of communication skills. That's and great. It's great. If I was to say one thing really, really positive about open relationship model to me is that people that are really practicing that with integrity and, and, and sincerity are some pretty awesome communicators is what I find like, mm-hmm. because it requires mm-hmm. really good communication skills. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise, you're just kind of playing around with something like... like um, you know, more promiscuity or, or, you know, something that is sort of faux uh, uh, polyamory. But I think to really do it well requires really excellent distinctions and boundaries and integrity and, um, right, alignment with core values. And, and to me, that's what I mean by open relationship. That's what I aspire to. That's what, what's meaningful to me about it. Right, and and just being aware of what our wants and needs are is revolutionary. Um, mm-hmm. I think our whole orientation in our culture is blaming other people or ex- having expectations of other people or m- making comments about things instead of saying what you need in that situation. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that takes a lot of practice, and that's what I love about NVC, nonviolent communication, is that it teaches changes our orientation inward to what do I want and need and then how can I verbalize that to my partner and it's a vulnerable place to be so I can see why people avoid it it feels very vulnerable to ask for what you want and need because you may not get Mm -hmm. it but you're certainly not going to get it if you don't ask for it (laughs) yeah I say viva la vulnerability you know it's you know I'd say that there are core values that we're we're referencing here you know nonviolent communications um is getting in tune with those core values and needs and taking 100% responsibility for ourselves and our experience. I'm a narrative therapist, so what I mean by that is that I'm looking at most of what makes up our emotions, our stories, interpretations of events, and our narrative. And so I'm 100% the author of my story. And and so I'm 100% responsible for my emotions, my needs, my values, expressing those and meeting those. And it's exactly what you say about blaming or demanding when we see, you know, when we experience that in a relationship, um, either you know, from someone else that's projecting their needs in, you know, onto us in a demanding way or in a in an entitled way, then you know it's going to be um, rough territory. Um, Right, to negotiate through those places in a skillful way. Again, that's what I teach. 100% responsibility for our own responses, our own um, um, how we navigate through uh, turbulence. Right, that's going to arise in in a significant relationship um, when um, when something is is affecting us that uh, is is difficult. It's triggering. Right. How we navigate those triggers yeah. is, to me, really interesting territory. 
Yeah, exactly. I was going to segue to that exact topic. Um, you talked earlier about setting up a framework or the groundwork for a conversation with your partner or partners, and you talked about making sure the nervous system is attended to. So I was going to ask you if you could talk a little bit about some pragmatic strategies for calming your nervous system because sometimes I've been triggered in a relationship and I know in my head that this is not about the other person, but yet my body feels like I'm a victim or I'm being attacked or whatever emotions are up for me and they're so big that it's hard for me to engage with the person in a sane way. So what what do you teach to help people calm their triggers and their nervous systems? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would distinguish between distinguish between self soothing or self regulation and co regulation, and so mm-hmm. it's a both and. Sometimes we need to like really take the space to self soothe and self regulate. We're just too worked up. We can't uh, cognitively function. We don't have our clarity of mind, and or we're exhausted, or we're fatigued, or we're. In, we're not in a state where we can really bring a conversation in a useful way. We're not grounded in our own in our own system. So we need to take the time uh, when the other can't be grounding and can't help us co-regulate. Like if both persons are triggered, then uh-huh. it's often best to get to, to to lean back into the self-regulation to take the retreat in order to advance. Whether that's ten minutes, an hour, an evening and resetting the conversation, repairing and coming back to the conversation, and another time graciously stepping back and um, resetting our own selves. Uh, When one is able to be stable and hold the space, then we we can process our triggers with the other person being stable for us and holding us. That's beautiful, right? That's an environment there where I can... I can really bring out what's vulnerable in me or what's hurting in me or what's frustrated or angry in me and the other can hold the space for that. And mm-hmm. Or vice versa. If the other is really distressed and I'm grounded like a tree rooted and I can like go, yeah, go ahead, bring me your storm. Share with me that. I can hear you. I feel you. I'm right here with you. Then that's beautiful. You know, when both persons are triggered, if I'm just off of my off of my center and ground and I've... And, and neither one of us can hold space for the other, that's a good time then to step back and retreat and recenter and reset and you know, access other resources. Yeah, my current partner and I, early on, we developed the sacredness of the timeout. If one of us asks for a timeout, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sacred timeout. Anything we say after, yeah, anything we say after the request for the timeout is not going to be good and not going to be helpful for the relationship. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's our sign to so stop talking. when we're in that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so tempting to, you well, know, you. Something, called, you know, something called the retaliatory impulse, right? It's like we get angry, mm-hmm. we get triggered, we get hurt. We want her back. You know, we're bummed mm-hmm. out at something. We want to, you know, we have a kind of a, sometimes a punitive response. It's visceral. It's Rain, you know, we want to retaliate and get even. We want vengeance, you know. It's like forget forgiveness right there. I want to just lash out. That's very powerful chemistry. You know, arousal mm-hmm. chemistry. It's interesting. The word arousal really has double meaning, right? So there's sexual arousal. There's like, whoa, I'm really ignited. I'm excited. My chemistry is really turned on. 
you know, I'm activated in such a good way, you push just the right buttons. And then there's the other kind of physiological, sympathetic arousal, which we think of as, you know, triggered and upset and distress patterning. And that kind of patterning is very deep, it's very limbic, it's non-rational, and it needs it needs a ground or it can cause trouble. Right. So it's interesting. It's right. like in, in good sex, it's like it's, it's required arousal regulation is is a subtle is, is is like a subtle art, right? Like for men to be aroused in a in the good way, there's that physiological arousal at the same time to to keep that charge going. At the same time, how do I stay calm here and and regulate my nervous system so that it doesn't get fluttered and overwhelmed? Mm-hmm. So, so we're all doing that, right? We're all doing that to some degree when we make love, mm-hmm. and so we can transfer those skills over to the emotional interrelationship realm as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like really, the, the passion and the emotional turbulence is is something really important is happening, right? Some really core values and core needs are underneath the, the distress. And so so important to get in there to be able to identify what those feelings and needs are that are really the fuel. You know, what are, what are the underlying needs and desires that are frustrated or, you know, that are threatened or that are in some kind of, in some, some kind of distress pattern? Right, I agree that oftentimes it comes down to what do you want and need underneath all that acting out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and sometimes case, the acting out. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, in case you're just joining our show, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with therapist Michael Gelbart, who is a specialist in um, helping non-monogamous people as well as monogamous people um, with intimacy and learning to regulate their physiology, communicate clearly with compassion and integrity. And we were talking about processing the heavy emotions that come up in relationship. And you were going to say something, Michael? Um, well, I was going to come back to something I was talking with before about the conversations in the erotic, uh, let's say conversations in the erotic zones or having to do with erotic zones. So, um, intimacy, turn-ons, sex, attraction, navigating other intimacies, that, con- that kind of conversation can be really stimulating and really exciting and actually really fun. And it can also be, be sensitive and one that can be um, uh, bring up differences, um, bring up insecurities, and so it's it's like how that conversation gets navigated uh, can either really uh, empower the sexuality and the attraction and the intimacy between two people, or it can bring up uh, different uh, values and norms and conflict around what those differences are. And so I think that's a conversation, for example, the, you know, in, into the erotic zones. It's such a good one for couples to have. It's a good one to lean into. It's going gonna, it's gonna to either 
empower the relationship to be much more erotically connective or it's going to it's going to challenge a relationship to see where the differences are where the boundaries need to be that need to be negotiated so that both people can be honest and have a sense of what their needs are what the other's needs are have agreements that can work for for the for each other and for the relationship mhm right so some people find that open relationships become heavy with a lot of processing and drama um, that's one of the criticisms that we get. What's been true in your personal experience and professional experience as well? And how do you, in your relationship and with your clients, how do you help keep the relationships from getting bogged down and keeping things loving and fun? Right, and keeping things real. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I look forward to hearing your answer to this question too. So I'll put that question back to you in a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a personal level, just getting more real with what I really need and want and what's important to me, what my values are, it's like more matter of fact. And um, my nervous system, as I'm, I'm in my 50s now, uh, as I mature, becomes calmer. And so I have less of a tendency to escalate arguments and conflicts. And I can turn myself on a dime into, like, let me understand this other person. I want to seek to understand them first if they're upset about something and really listen. And that minimizes the drama. And then I'm very clear about what I'm offering and what I'm not. I'd say that's a really important boundary. Here's who I am. This is what I'm offering. And this is what I'm not. And then I'm also very, very... uh, very clear that I'm allowing others to be who they are. I'm not there to control or determine or I have some kind of attachment about the way that someone else is in relation to me or in relation to their other relationships. I want people to be free and I want to be free myself. So I give that allowance and that's, I think that really minimizes processing and minimizes drama, not trying to control anybody. Mm -hmm. Right. How about you? Yeah. And well, yeah, I was thinking about how I would answer that question, but what just came up for me was in our in our culture, the default relationship model is monogamy, and we start to expect our partner to be a reflection of us, and we often want to control them and have them show up in a certain way because we think it's a reflection on our self-esteem or who we are. Um, and I think open relationship just, tears that apart and gives us a chance to let go of those expectations, to let each person be who they are and um, have their choices. Um, And it doesn't have anything to do with me what another person chooses to do. Um, So to answer that question, I think my meditation and spiritual practice is a huge part of how I manage jealousy as well as manage triggers. So um, as I said, the, the timeout is very important in my relationship. And what I usually do is I give my nervous system a chance to calm down with time, which it inevitably, inevitably does with time. And then I take time to meditate and connect with who I really am. And when I connect with that place of, of pure love within myself, then I can come back to my partner and do kind of what you were saying, um, where I'm just coming from a place of curiosity 
My ego's not attached to it. I just want to know what's going on for them. It's not about me. How can I help them feel seen and hold the space for them to get through their trigger? And I think mm-hmm. with a relationship where there's a lot of commitment and underlying love, and my partner and I are friends first. So we'll be friends forever, mm-hmm. whether or not we are lovers. Um, our form of our relationship may change over time, but we love each other as friends. And to us, that means a lot. So mm-hmm. um, having that mm-hmm. model for us and that definition helps us get through those turbulent times. Um, but you were at, we were asking about how do we keep relationships from bogging down and staying light and fun mm-hmm. and happy. Um, so I think something that my partner and I practice, we're big um, disciples of uh, Eckhart Tolle, so we really practice being in the now. So when we get through a conflict and we get to the other side, we let it go. We just let it go, and now here we are in the moment, and we love each other, and we're going to move forward with that. Um, so that's mm-hmm. a big tool that we also use. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, uh, Amanda's she's got a great sense of humor, and she knows how to keep things light and and. Um, it's, it's interesting also attachment style-wise. Amanda has a kind of a little more of, I don't know I'd call it, a little more counter-dependent and in a way that works for me. Uh, if, when I've been in relationship with people that have been more anxious or more clingy, I, can, I mm-hmm. would tend to, feel, I tended to feel more confined. And because mm-hmm. she gives me this permission to be where I am, who I am, kind of like what you're describing, how you are in your relationship, I just feel mm-hmm. more relaxed. There's nothing. I'm not fighting anything. I'm not rebelling against anything. I have this permission mm-hmm. to be who I am and to offer and give what I give, and it actually moves me towards her more. Whereas mm-hmm. if someone has a more anxious style, and I think that's really a key to figuring this whole thing out, is the attachment style patterning. And um, mm-hmm. not right. like I've got that all figured out, but I can see what works for me. And what doesn't? When I've been in relation with people that have been more anxious or sympathetically activated, like they have really heightened triggers, really heightened sympathetic arousal, they have trauma in their background, and when they get triggered, it's like, whew, hell has no fury. And it's been challenging for me then to be that steady rooted tree in the storm. Mm-hmm. where when someone's regulating themselves better, and Amanda does a really good job of regu- self-regulation, mm-hmm. I don't have as much imposed upon me to co-regulate, and then we can co-regulate in a more balanced and harmonious way. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. Right. So with the attachment styles, do you think it's important to pick a partner who complements your style? Yes. <laughs> yes, 100%. And, you know, I mean, I, I see that sometimes, you know, the woman, the, the women that choose the bad boy, you know, and they're super sexually aroused by the bad boy. And then they have this whole conflict around they're super aroused, but he's the unavailable bad boy, and yet they're pulled towards them. So, you know, we're going to have our attachment patterning styles revealed to us over and over. We're going to see who we match up with well. And again, it sounds like there's a sweet spot there. You know, if it's not arousing at all, it's like, you know, not very alive and bad probably. If it's too arousing, it can be really alive and bad, but really stormy, you know, on on the relationship 
see. I've been so there, done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think both yeah. sets of both kinds of you know different attachment patterns have a there's a lot for us to learn in those patterns. It's going to be evidence we're going to have and then learn from when it's not arousing at all, when it's overly arousing, it was just the sweet spot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And that comes from experience. Really, you have to get out there and mix it up and try different things before you know. Mm-hmm. I think that definitely, yeah, I, I agree. It comes from experience. And yeah. um, I want to say two other things about good to about have good, good, yeah. good an experienced person to hold your hand through it. So you can mm-hmm. learn more quickly than if you're just out there on your own. <laughs> mhm. Yeah, it definitely helps to have people outside of the maze that are that are giving us some perceptions into into where we are in our in our mm-hmm. patterns. And I look like an archaeologist, I look at the layers of patterns that people carry into relationships. I look at the context. Right? Like at least if you see three generations, if you don't see three generations of a person, their parents and their grandparents, you don't see that bigger systemic patterning, then you don't really know the person, the individual. We're embedded Mm -hmm. in these really large contexts. I'm kind of like an archaeologist of the soul, you know. Right, that's beautiful. So another criticism that um, non-monogamous people get is that, oh, this is just an excuse for sleeping around. So what would you say is the difference between sleeping around and ethical, responsible (laughs) non-monogamy? Honesty. I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, if you're telling someone you're sleeping around with, that you're sleeping around with other people and you're giving some, you know, not too much information, as much as they can handle or want to handle, um, but not too little, then you're being honest about this is what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing around safe sex. This is I have other lovers. You know, and then the other person has a choice, whereas if you're withholding information, there's it, it's, it's dishonest and it's it's you know betrayal and um, deception is just, so much of betrayal is deception you know it's the cheating right. so if you're being honest and upfront then it's not just sleeping around and saying look I am sleeping around with two I have two other lovers and I want you to know that then you have a choice about whether to be involved with me or not if you want to meet my other partners that's another thing I'm very very inclusive. If I'm seeing someone else that's getting significant, I'm going to want them, at least I'm going to say to them, hey, I'd love for you to meet Amanda. And Amanda, would you want to meet them? And Because then it's really up front and everybody's, you know, making choices. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, I had a question and then I lost it. Um, I've got something I wanted to add. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Strategies, strategies of navigating turbulence and keeping things from... Uh, getting drama and too much process. Number one is I'm a somatic therapist, so I really, you know, that that embodiment, physical uh, embodiment and grounding is paramount. Uh, It's my kind of mindfulness practice. So as long as I'm grounding in my body, I'm not too much in my head and my stories. And I do a lot of work with interrupting stories so that we're aware of the stories we're telling and how helpful or not helpful they are. 
And a lot of that is really regulating the physiology and the nervous system. That's fundamental to me. That's the bottom line to me is regulating the, the physiology and the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, I remembered my question now. So um, do you think couples who have had an infidelity, a dishonest infidelity, can um, switch into a not, an ethical non-monogamous relationship? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, first of all, there's repair of the dishonesty. And then there's mm-hmm. unpackaging what that affair means. What kind of affair was it? What was the motivation? Um, I wanted to keep my marriage when I opened it up to polyamory. I wanted both. I, I wanted to keep the marriage in the family, and I wanted to have have an open relationship. We weren't quite able to navigate that in a way that secured my was wife enough, you know, that she felt safe enough doing that. So it's not for everyone. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's an adventure in a sense. It's an open, it's a risk-taking. And I think people at different stages in their life are more or less willing to take those kind of adventures and risks, right? The younger mm-hmm. couple may not be willing to do that. They want to first build their base, build their nest, build their security, have the stability. That makes total sense for different developmental phases, for different persons. And um, again, that integrity is so important to say, this is what I'm really offering, this is what I'm available for, and then giving the other person the choice, what they're, what they're in for. Mhm. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. And so right, it takes it takes some it takes some work and some unraveling, but it 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 could be possible, huh? Ah, come back to that question. Yes. To, to transit uh, to transition to ethical non-monogamy from a monogamous relationship where there's been cheating. First the healing, first the repair, first the uncovering, first the the exploration of what the affair means. First, the repair, you know, the repair of trust, and then an exploration, okay, well, what do we want to do? Do we want to stay together? Can we go back to monogamy? Does that fit for us anymore? Would opening mm-hmm. our relationship be something that both people are really inclined to say yes to? I don't want to persuade anybody that open relationship is right for them. Mm-hmm. You know, both persons have to be like I pushed that a little too much in my marriage and that she wasn't ready for it. It mm-hmm. really has to come from within each person as a true, you know, as a true development and as a true direction that they want to move in. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, another question. Um, I read on your website that you uh, referenced the chakra system in your work as a useful model for seeing intimacy. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and define it for people who aren't, aren't familiar with the chakra system? Yeah. I've heard it pronounced actually uh, by one teacher who recently passed, uh, Shakti, who said chakra, you know, chakra. That's like chakra. I want to acknowledge Shakti Milan, such a beautiful, beautiful empathic heart he's passed recently. Just Ah, such mm-hmm. a deep, beautiful person. And I think of the mm-hmm. chakras, I think of it, we're whole beings, right? We're whole energy systems, and we have different levels in, of who we are. So the, the root chakra is about security and safety and grounding. And the second chakra is the belly, is, is intimacy and 
ah, the visceral body, aliveness, creativity, the third chakra is, has to do with power and control and confidence and self-doubt and how we navigate insecurities inside of our relationships, how we navigate between the feminine and the masculine. The fourth chakra is the heart chakra, so it's that openness, that beautiful green uh, expansiveness that we're capable of and uh, is relational and is connected. And when it's open, it's so um, beautiful. When it's closed, it's uh, painful. Um, the fifth chakra is more about expression and, and uh, how, do, how does a couple communicate. Most couples or individuals come into me and what they're focusing on is communication. Well, communications is a nice word that means a lot of different things. And so it's also about discernment and listening, right? It's also about restraint. It's also mm-hmm. about holding space and having space held for us. So the chakra has many meanings, verbal and, and uh, other forms of expression. The sixth chakra has to do with perception, narrative, stories, uh, perspectives. I call my work shift in perspective or intimacy perspectives. And so it's all about our vision and our ability to be expansive and uh, in what we see and being able to associate, being able to remember things and being able to uh, be alert and aware visually and auditorily of our, of our environments, right, as well as our internal uh, perceptual uh, experiences. And the seventh chakra is more of the crown chakra. It's, it's more um, the spirit body and, um, and the cosmic uh, connection to what's so expansive and, and, and great, transcendent of, of any personal, uh, of, of, of our personalities. And, and the last thing I'd say, I mean, I'd say two things just to finish. I mean, our time is probably coming uh, close. close. Um, that the chakras, we can, it's just a system then for looking at assessing like a couple relationship is where are the blockages? Where's the flow? Where's the connection easy? Where's the challenging? What's the level that we need to work at, right? The layer or the level that needs to be worked at and addressed. It may be security mm-hmm. issues, maybe power, it may be communications, it may be the narrative or perception, the shared meaning that the couple, ha- that people or, or individuals have um, that they're navigating between. So it's, it's a useful framework, I find, to help determine where we want to explore, where we want to, mm-hmm. uh, where we're connected. Where we make right, beautiful. Connected. Thank you. Yeah. And then my last question is, how do you not get spread too thin? <laughs> There's limitations of time and energy and availability in open relationships. So, how do mm-hmm. you manage your energy? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, you know, that's a hard one, not just in relationships. I just find that sitting at my desk in my email with all my projects and my goals and my objectives, again, I, I just do my best to ground my energy and not expect too much of myself and stretch when I can and pay attention to where, when my physiology is really awake and alive and available and when it's when it's time for a nap, right? We had a little conversation beforehand. I said, how do you maintain your energy? You know, and, and Sumati said, I take naps. <laughs> right. <laughs> <A lot. laughs> 
That's why. <laughs> yes, a big fan of the nap. <laughs> I think we have Even to watch our ambitions. for five minutes. Yeah, we have what to watch that? our ambitions and our goals. You know, watch, watch to not overextend, you know. But, yeah, to extend just to the right amount and not over, and when I overextend, I'm going to have to pull my energy back in. So I think it's, again, energy energy regulation, right? Yeah, and I find that the more I'm in the now, the more I'm enjoying the activities I'm choosing to partake of, and I can feel satisfied with my day and not feel like I had to do 10 more things because I was fully present in the thing I chose to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoy how you show up, Sumati. You show up with... You know, presence and availability and attention and curiosity and fun and engaging. You know, you have such a great way of navigating, um, I think, uh, you know, relationships. And and uh, I really respect and appreciate that in you. Oh, thank you. I'll take that in. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we have a little bit, we have just a couple more minutes before I'm going to give you a chance to tell people how they can get in touch with you. So in the last few minutes, would you like to share any other pragmatic strategies that you've discovered for helping people navigate open relationships? Mm-hmm. I know we've talked about a lot of things already, but is there anything that you haven't mentioned yet? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Remember to just really uh, take the space and the time to ground and and self care and um, really be grateful for what it is that we have. And uh, I think gratitude is always a place to begin. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty complete in what I've shared. Yeah, I really appreciate the conversation. Okay. Yeah, you talked earlier about taking sex and intimacy out of constricting boxes. Um, what did you mean by that? That there's a whole range of of intimacy, like a continuum or a spectrum of intimacy from uh, just the handshake and eye contact with someone in the street or seeing somebody and nodding to them, having a real sense of eye contact with somebody, to um, more uh, flirting and different kinds of energetic exchanges. and Like um, on the dance floor. Yeah, like on the dance floor, off the dance floor. It's like how we actually make our energy available to somebody and mm-hmm. how much we listen and drop in and really pay attention to them, how present we are to them. That can be just so satisfying in and of itself. It doesn't require sex, you know, it's, not all about mm-hmm. sex. It's about connection and relationship and and intimacy and engagement and and um, and sometimes it's not even about that. It's just about solitude and and allowing ourselves to be who we are. So it's a whole range. And you know, I think we can overvalue sex. And I think we can under undervalue it. We can put it in the wrong place. I think it's good to have it in the sense of the, in the whole spectrum of what's erotic or what's aliveness or what's passionate and um, look at it in that whole continuum rather than seeing it as 
as paramount or the penultimate or um, even though in some ways it is uh, penultimate. <laughs> it's also there's all kinds of tantric connections, all varying forms of love and um, being considerate, being respectful, being responsible. Those are all different forms of connection and being relational. And I think we can have a whole sense of the, the range being uh, possible and optional and uh, how we can express ourselves in our in our lives. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Michael. It was wonderful speaking with you and learning about all your wisdom. Um, do you want to take a couple minutes to tell people how they can get in touch with you? And I believe you also have an offer for our listeners. Yeah, well, I would offer to um, to the listeners, uh, to you all, is if you'd like a 30-minute consultation, uh, send me an email at gilbertmichael at gmail.com. You can look me up at Intimacy Perspectives. Yeah, Gelbart, G-E-L-B-A-R-T, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, gelbartmichael at gmail.com. And my website is intimacyperspectives.com, Intimacy Perspectives. And you can also find me on Facebook at Intimacy Perspectives. So a 30-minute consultation if you like some time, and I can do that over Skype if you like, and I'm open to hearing from you. Love to hear your feedback. Fabulous. Well, that's very generous of you. Thank you for offering that to our listeners, and I hope people will take you up on that because you have a lot of experience and wisdom to share, and you're just beautiful at holding space for people. So thank you for the gift that you are. Thank you, Sumati, for the gifts that you give and that you bring to to (laughs) our collective conversations and the wisdom you bring. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Enjoy the conversation. Okay. Be well, All right. Thank you, Michael. We'll see you later. Okay. Bye.